if we look at our hate crime data, for example, uh, you know, anti-black uh, hate crime is most frequent, followed by anti-Jewish and, and anti-Muslim, uh, anti-gay. Uh, there's, you know, very few racialized or other minority communities that are not somehow affected by hate crime. Uh, and that has a, a dramatic effect, not just on the individuals, but on the communities as well. Hello, my friends. I'm your host, Victor Rampadrat. Welcome to the show where we share the lived experiences of ordinary people just like you. We're amplifying your voice to provide a different perspective on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our goal is simple. Humanize DEI so we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect. Our next guest is the director at the Center on Hate, Bias, and Extremism at Ontario Tech University. She has written extensively in the area of hate crime and right-wing extremism. I've had the pleasure of knowing Dr. Barbara Perry for a few years, and she never ceases to amaze me with her knowledge. I'm so excited for you to listen in as we chat with this well-respected thought leader today. Welcome to the show, Barb. How you doing? It's good. Good to see you, Victor. You as well. So, you know, for everyone that listens in, we always like to dive right in and we ask some of the tough questions and we always go back to childhood because we feel like that's where we start to really learn the, about the world around us. So what was your childhood like growing up and how much of that experience shapes the work that you do today? That's a that's a great question. It's probably maybe the second time, third time I've been asked that uh, in in the last few years, and I, I always sort of am taken aback by it because I'm trying to figure out the answer to that question. Um, I you know I guess in retrospect, it was really an idyllic life. Uh, you know life growing up. I was raised on a farm. My, my dad was a dairy farmer. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just grew up being in the outdoors and uh, being outside and, and enjoying myself, which is very odd. I mean, I, you know, I had no traumatic experiences or no difficulties. You know, I, I breezed through, through school. I, you know, I was, I will be honest, I was a bully. Uh, and so maybe maybe that's part of it. Uh, I actually had that conversation with somebody a few weeks ago that, um, you know, for all of my relative privilege, you know, farmers are never rich and my dad certainly wasn't, but I never felt disadvantaged. Um, but for all of that, I was, yeah, I was the class bully until, you know, probably eighth grade, ninth grade or uh, somewhere around there. So perhaps I'm doing uh, atonement now uh, and trying to make amends. And uh, I remember a few years back, we had a class reunion of my grade school class. And some of the, the women that I'd gone to school with, we had gone to school with, because there were a couple of us that were sort of leading the charge there, said, why would I want to see you people again? You treated me like... <laughs> like shit, excuse me. Uh, but I was like, okay, yeah, <laughs> you, you got me there. So maybe that's why I'm doing what I'm doing is really to uh, overcome the way that I mistreated uh, people as I was growing up. I think that's really uh, profound in the sense that, you know, you are now talking specifically around people who you know, enact bullying in, in the forms of hate and extremism. So, you know, back at grade six, seven, eight, you know, Dr. Barbara Perry, before she was doctor, was a bully. And I think that, you know, for for that, it, it really is showing you that people can change, which I love, right? I yeah. think that's that's really impressive. Now, this, you know, dairy farm and this school, was this in sort of like greater Toronto area or was this somewhere more rural where, 
you know, it was a little bit different. You weren't exposed to maybe different cultures, et cetera, or was it, uh, was it pretty ethno diverse? Very, you know, very rural, uh, a couple hours east of, uh, of Toronto. Um, so yeah, very homogeneous. I, I think going through grade school, I think we had, there was one indigenous student who uh, had actually been adopted by, uh, you know, a, a white family. And I think that was about it uh, for, uh, for diversity, even high school, you know, there was, again, I think, you know, three black students, again, they were all adopted. Uh, so we didn't even have at that time, you know, there weren't even black families. Now, interestingly enough, we were on the edge of Tyndanaga Indigenous Reserve east of Belleville. So, um, you know, we did have exposure to Indigenous folks um, through softball uh, in particular, not so much uh, through school. Very cool. Very cool. Now, bias is definitely something that affects us all. How do you see sort of biases shaping the reality of the world we live in today? Oh my gosh, there are so many indicators there. Uh, and it runs from bias all the way up to extremism, hence the name uh, of the center. Um, you know, I mean, bias is uh, embedded uh, in our culture from uh, from the get-go, from first contact. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the processes of colonization are, are you know, that's in our, our psyche, our national psyche. Um, so, you know, we continue to see the, the manifestations, the consequences of those historical processes. Um, but obviously, you know, we, we see it in uh, institutional structures of racism, homophobia, uh, misogyny, you know, you name it, uh, you know, it's, it's across the board in, in key institutions. Uh, there's, you know, there's not a core institution in our society that's not somehow uh, affected by that. We see it in manifestations of hate speech and, and hateful narratives and hate crime, whether it's online or, or offline. And, and the social media uh, has just been an incredible um, boon, if you will, for hate mongers. It really has allowed them to uh, both disseminate their narratives and have their beliefs reinforced and reaffirmed uh, by sort of isolating themselves uh, in what we've come to call now echo chambers uh, so that, you know, they become even more hardened and more uh, firm in their resolve uh, to hate uh, whoever that might be. Um, so we see it in, um, you know, police data, police reported data on hate crime, where, you know, in 2017, we saw a 47% increase. In 2020, we saw a further 37% increase. So at historical highs, uh, in terms of uh, police reported hate crime. We see it in extremism and the rise of the far right, which has trebled probably in the last uh, five or six years since, uh, since we published our first report in this area. Uh, now in the update, so in 2015, we identified just over 100 active uh, hate groups and now uh, far right hate groups specifically. And in the last couple of years, we've identified now more than 300 uh, such groups. So any way you look at it, you know, we're seeing a, a dramatic surge in hate, hostility, you know, sort of extreme manifestations of bias, if you will. So that's interesting because so would you say then, um, if I'm understanding correctly, that Bias is sort of like the beginning point, and then you can get to further progressive levels uh, that lead to the extremism that you, you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the that's the foundational building block, uh, you know, stereotypes, negative attitudes. And if they stay at that level, right, if it stays at the level of attitudes and it's not expressed, 
well, you know, we're not thought police. Uh, you can believe what you want. It's when, you know, those biases then uh, are reproduced uh, or expressed uh, and reproduced. And that's sort of when we're talking about the structural uh, forms of, of racism. It's embedded in policy and practice and the way that we do business uh, or the way that, uh, you know, the law is uh, enforced or, uh, or uh, enacted. Um, so uh, all of those all of those sorts of, uh, of pieces. Um, there's uh, the uh, Anti-Defamation League in the U.S. years ago constructed, you know, what has been now is taken as sort of the, I guess, most representative or most effective way to visualize this sort of exacerbation, if you will, with the what they called the pyramid of hate. So at the bottom, yeah, we had, you know, there's bias and, um, you know, negative attitudes and those sorts of things. And the next stage up is, uh, you know, hate speech and, and derogatory jokes and slurs and all of that sort of thing. And, and each one builds. If left unchecked, each one builds on the other till we get to the point. Now, their their final point was uh, was genocide. And, you know, we hope that we don't get to that stage but of course we've seen it even in in recent years um and even historically i mean you know trudeau famously or infamously depending on your perspective um did describe our, our treatment of uh, indigenous peoples as genocidal so you know perhaps we have we have uh, had that experience um but uh, yeah certainly it you know sort of escalates uh, throughout that pyramid so and and you talked about you know the embedding of this within sort of society or within individuals as well is there a correlation between societal and individual bias would you say yeah, well, and of course, I think it's cyclical. Um, but right now, of course, what we're seeing is the the are the ways in which broader social patterns uh, contribute to increased hostility, increased suspicion, increased fear, whatever it is that underlies uh, these sorts of biases. So we've seen it in obviously coming from the south in particular. We've seen it in political discourse and the vilification of particular communities and how that's impacted public opinion around those same uh, same sorts of communities uh, and you know not to lay all the blame at the feet of Trump because we've had our own fear mongers uh, in the Canadian context and so it has been reproduced in uh, in public opinion as well and then of course as public opinion starts to lean in that direction politicians in particular um, and far-right groups um, exploit that and uh, so that's that's sort of where the cycle uh, emerges is that, uh, that they mutually reinforce one another and would you say because you mentioned something that I've personally seen and I'm I'm someone who typically tries to stay off of social media but you know I've, I've, I've spent a little bit of time on LinkedIn in the last year and I've noticed a sort of an uptick of, of people pushing very specific narratives and 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 is this sort of the outlet that people are choosing social media to really push those narratives and 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 gain popularity amongst groups yeah, I think that that's a, a lot of what we've seen, especially under COVID for multiple reasons. The pragmatic reason is that, you know, we were, you know, if we were under lockdown, uh, even the bad actors were behaving themselves more or less. Um, but, uh, you know, on sort of either end of COVID, you know, we've seen a lot of offline uh, activity and offline uh, sort of sharing narratives, especially in the last, around COVID, specifically around the last 
what, six months or so, uh, especially, you know, the, the protests, the anti-vax protests, the anti-lockdown um, protests. I mean, they've been longer lasting, but I guess maybe it's really the epitome of those or the acme of those were the protests at the hospitals during the last election campaign, the federal election campaign. Um, so so we do see some of that offline, uh, but but so much of it is online because we're all at our computers. We're all on our phones, on our devices, uh, you know, 24-7, it seems like. I, mean, I don't know when some people sleep. They're so busy, uh, you know, disseminating some of this nonsense. So um, it, it absolutely has become not not just and it's not just about sort of the production, but it's also about the consumption uh, of those narratives that, you know, we're, we're exposed to them. We're going looking for them. Uh, you know, again, in the context of COVID, there's so much emotional and psychological anxiety, financial anxiety. We're looking for answers. We're looking for scapegoats. Uh, and there are some, uh, you know, hate mongers that are very happy to give simple explanations for why we're in the situation we are and exploiting conspiracy theories and exploiting uh, stereotypes about particular communities. So, um, you know, it's there for all of us uh, to consume. You mentioned something interesting about consumption because, I mean, there's no lack of this out there, right? And I've noticed it specifically around COVID. I've noticed it with uh, the BLM movement like Black Lives Matter. I've noticed it with uh, a few different things where people are, are consuming a lot of this uh, a narrative. And how does that typically influence, if you could speak to this, the impressionable individuals that can you know take something and, and run with it? Yeah. Uh, well, this is where the far right in particular have been, um, you know, quite skilled in exploiting populist concerns and anxieties like COVID or like job loss or, you know, business, you know, the, the, the loss of businesses, mass loss of businesses we've seen in the last uh, year or so. Uh, exploit that, those vulnerabilities uh, and, uh, and and really play to them and, and play them up. Uh, and so individuals who, uh, as I said, are looking for those explanations um, are, you know, are, are ready uh, to consume those uh, those conspiracy theories. Uh, and it builds on perhaps, you know, maybe sentiments that have been lying dormant or just below the surface amongst those individuals. So again, if we look at public opinion polls, we're seeing dramatic increases over the last five, six, seven years around anti-immigrant sentiment, even around anti-Muslim sentiment. Uh, even, and when people are asked, uh, you know, is questions about um, their, their freedom to express those sentiments, they say, yeah, I do feel like it's more acceptable uh, to express those those negative attitudes. So uh, they are, you know, I think they are they're they're using those narratives. They're adopting those narratives uh, to suit their own needs, and then you know reproducing them or retweeting them, not reproducing them, just passing them on, um, so that it spreads within their network. And then they come back, right, and, and reinforce one another. So again, I'm talking a lot about cycles today, but that really is what we're seeing. Wow. Now, you know, earlier this year here in Canada, we were rocked by the discovery of the indigenous residential schools and, and, and the remains there. We saw an increase in anti-Asian hate due to the pandemic. And in London, Ontario, we had a family that was killed uh, for walking while Muslim. What effect does hate have on us as a society at large? It's I mean, at root, it's divisive. 
you know, the, the kinds of hateful narratives we've seen have polarized us. Uh, you know, we, there's sort of no middle ground, uh, right, where we, we tend to take a position now and dig in our heels and, and stick with that position. Uh, and uh, I think that that has been sort of one of the, the most uh, dramatic and, and dangerous and harmful outcomes of, uh, of COVID, for example, because it has been a context in which those manifestations of hatred uh, have increased. And it makes it hard to walk that back now. It makes it hard to put that uh, that genie back in the bottle, so to speak. So um, th this, I mean, this past half dozen years, because it you know predates COVID, uh, you know, in terms of the uh, the the hate mongering and the growth in in hate crimes and uh, hate speech and and hate groups. Um, it, it is a long uh, sort of a long trajectory that uh, that we've been seeing. And I mean, the sad thing is, I don't see it. Uh, I don't see it ending anytime soon as we continue with restrictions around COVID and the reactions to those restrictions. Uh, Trump's still very much in the picture, likely to run in the next election. Some pundits are saying he's likely to win the next uh, U.S. election. How will that affect us? It affected us dramatically when the baseline was quite low. The baseline has risen. If he exacerbates that, uh, you know, Canadians and Americans both, I think, uh, will we'll see that escalation again. Wow. And that's something that, I, like you said, has polarized us, many of us. Uh, and, 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 you know, I've talked to folks in the U.S. who are friends and, and family members are polarized. Yeah. You know, yeah. they've had to uh, remove you. We were talking about social media earlier, remove them from social because the narratives that were being pushed. Yeah. Um, which is just the dissemination of that information throughout the network, right? So now one of the things so that- let me, let me just add, yeah, so yeah. I sort of lost track of the question there for a minute. Um, but I, I think the other consequence, um, well, one of many other consequences that we need to to attend to is the fear that it's instilled, the anxiety it's instilled in, in the communities that are most affected by it. Um, if we look at our hate crime data, for example, uh, you know, anti-Black uh, hate crime is most frequent followed by anti-Jewish and, and anti-Muslim, uh, anti-gay. Uh, there's you know very few racialized or other minority communities that are not somehow affected by hate crime. Uh, and that has a, a dramatic effect, not just on the individuals, but on the communities as well. And that's a lot of what my work has been done, uh, what a lot of my work has been about. Uh, with communities is looking at what are those ripple effects? What are those uh, carry on effects uh, for others? So, you know, it's not just the individual victim who becomes, uh, you know, fearful and changes their way of being in the world. Uh, you know, Muslim women perhaps taking off the veil uh, or, uh, you know, Jewish men no longer wearing the kippah, uh, those, those sorts of things. So we, you know, it changes not just how you feel, but how you act as well. And, and, you know, people feel, like they have to hide or suppress a, a part of their uh, their identity to be safe, uh, and that's a horrific thing to to force on uh, on anyone, any community, um, to uh, for them really to deny uh, who they are. You know, and that that's actually I'm glad that you mentioned that because that segues perfectly to something I was going to ask is the fact that you know you are someone who is very well respected for your work in the anti-Semitism, Islamophobia space, so you understand religion. Uh, a little bit more than the average person. And, and you mentioned about people, you know, feeling like they needed to discard some of the religious garb that they would wear for the necessity to fit in. 
I noticed that growing up in uh, Scarborough, which for our, our listeners who don't know is is really a, a, a multicultural, diverse area. Uh, one of the probably the most multiculturally diverse areas in Canada with the amount of people from different regions and places in the world. And, you know, I remember specifically in and around that grade seven, grade eight, when, you know, kids can become those bullies that a lot of the folks that were Muslim would start to, you know, remove their turban, uh, sorry, uh, remove their um, hijab or the Sikhs would remove their turbans um, because of being made fun of when coming to school. Does that still, you know, seem to be the case today? And how does that sort of work into the workplace and sort of higher academia because you're you're teaching at the university? Like, what is the pulse, you know, today versus 20 something years ago when I was noticing that? Well, there's still some of that. There absolutely is. And in, in interviews that I've done with with folks from the Muslim community, from the within the gay community as well, who say, you know, I try to look less gay, whatever whatever that means. So you you do still see that, but you also see, interestingly, an awful lot of people who are also saying, you know, they're sort of pushing back against that and saying, you're not going to silence me. Uh, you know, I've heard I've had young Muslim women say, you know, it was when they started to experience. Um, discrimination or became aware of it in their in their environs that's when they actually started to you know put on the hijab so that they it was it was you know to take a stand to you know sort of express themselves to express their identity openly and say mm, no no you're not I'm not I'm not having that so I you know it, it really can go go in either direction I'm more likely to hear sadly um, you know people who are uh, you know sort of um, going going back in the closet, so to speak, who are trying to hide their identity. But, you know, there there are, I think, an encouraging number of people who resist that. Do you think authenticity has a liability to it? Well, yeah. I mean, that that's that's why folks are, you know, w- when we look at anti-Muslim violence, for example, it's more, it, it's women who are more likely to experience uh, anti-Muslim hate crime than men. And in large part, it's because of their visibility. So, yeah, if they are, you know, if they're living their authentic selves and expressing themselves uh, as as they would like to and uh, feel maybe that they need to. Yeah, it, it does, um, you know, sort of draw attention. It does provide, I, I won't say the impetus, but a, sing- a signal, uh, if you will, uh, of their identity, a symbol of their identity, which become, it does become a, a liability in that, uh, in that sort of environment where people are being singled out because of their group identity. Yeah, there's one girl who was actually our first guest on the show. She had received a lot of hate. Uh, she was doing a lot of uh, speaking about uh, being Muslim and sort of um, her uh, removal of the hijab, her thought process around um, some of the old ideologic and and religious sort of constructs that have been taught versus her sort of finding her own way. And she received a lot of hate from folks who were like, you're not a true Muslim, you're this and that, like, and, and from all sort of parties, like, you know, she was being called, uh, she, her words, I think it was packy or like just really difficult things to be reading. And it was all on social media, people yeah. who had never met this individual. And it was very hard for her yeah. as a human being. What can we do to sort of, not have this hatred and not go after people like what what are your thoughts around that oh my gosh yeah you you ask the easy questions don't you <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah i mean i think that we you know we're looking for a silver bullet and there isn't one um 
you know, there, there are just so many strategies that we have to engage in simultaneously. Um, I often talk of the need for multi-sectoral approaches. I mean, we tend to think about hate crime as a law enforcement issue, criminal justice issue. It's not, uh, you know, that's sort of the last resort. Um, it's a public health issue. It's an educational issue. It's a, you know, social service issue. I mean, all sectors of society, civil society in particular, um, you know, have a role to play in, in challenging this. In fact, most of the, you know, a lot of the really good work being done around, you know, counter narratives or challenging hate online in particular is coming from civil society organizations, community-based organizations, not necessarily from, uh, you know, government entities. So I think that um, that is certainly one thing that needs to be done is to support the work of those kinds of organizations to continue to do uh, what they're already doing. Uh, and, and, you know, some programs having incredible uh, effects in that respect. Um, you're never going to catch those folks at the fringe, right? You're never going to catch the folks at the extreme. I mean, they're, they're too far gone. You can't talk logic. You can't talk science because they deny all of that. What I'm interested in is capturing that sort of mushy middle um, who's maybe apathetic, uh, who are maybe bystanders and encouraging them to be upstanders, um, but also, you know, giving them the tools, whether they're youth or adults, giving them the tools and the capacity to recognize disinformation, hate, uh, you know, whatever it is, we're you know, that, that is of concern when they see it uh, and developing ways and strategies of, of countering that, um, you know, which can be either, you know, simply, you know, uh, disengaging uh, or, you know, if it's safe to to push back against it. And, and if you could give us maybe one or two tools that you would recommend outside of sort of disengaging, is there is there anything that you would say that someone could do? to help with the fabric of society? Because like you said, we all have a part to play. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the things that we've, we've seen is, um, and, and I think this has some, something to do with, the, with exhaustion and fatigue, is we've seen a bit of a decrease in uh, sort of uh, you know, engagement, public engagement in those kinds of community-based organizations I was talking about. And I think that's one thing is that, you know, we can get involved. We can be a part uh, of those organizations that are developing strategies. So, you know, it's that old call to volunteerism, but, uh, you know, a very in a very specific uh, space here. Um, I think the other thing, and this is something I, I harp on a lot, um, is this whole idea of uh, sort of, especially in this context, the current context, uh, cultural, uh, sorry, critical digital literacy. Um, and that is, you know, yeah, it's important to fact check and all of that sort of thing. But, you know, it goes it goes deeper than that as well. Um, you know, and I think, again, it comes back to what I was talking about, those skills, that knowledge, that awareness, the capacity um, uh, around how to how to counter um, those sorts of narratives as well. Um, so it's you know, it's it's taking a deep dive into those things that are passing our screen uh, on a daily basis. Don't just simply, you know, tweet them on, retweet them. Uh, but, uh, you know, take a moment. It's interesting. A, a year or so ago, I remember reading about someone who was building an application uh, that you would, this is not something that the government would impose, uh, but that you could, you know, put on your own device or perhaps on your children's device. And when something, uh, you know, that was potentially disinformation uh, came by your screen or was maybe hate speech or something like that, um, you know, it would be flagged so that you would take a moment, reflect on it, think about it, 
and then decide, you know, whether you wanted to share it or whether you wanted to respond or whether you wanted to dig more deeply into the issue, do your own research, that sort of thing. And I thought that was, you know, that was, it seems like a very small thing, but anything that gives us pause uh, and encourages us to reflect on what we're consuming, I think, uh, is, uh, is a step forward. I love that. I think that, you know, a lot of times that pause and reflection point gives us an opportunity to really determine whether or not this is information that we want to take in, whether that's information that we believe is valid or we want to discard it. And I think that a lot of people just take things at face value versus really looking at how we could, you know, sort of uh, filter the information, if you will. You know, and, and to that volunteerism point, I think that that's really interesting. People getting involved in this conversation. Are you finding that people are becoming more involved in this conversation post George Floyd? Well, interesting. Yeah. I mean, we did have a, a very active summer last year, but you know, things are, things are a little quiet again. I mean, the, even after the um, exoneration, not, not exoneration, the finding of not guilty for Rittenhouse in the U S I expected an awful lot more activism. I think that, I think that people are becoming deflated. Um, in that context, in response to those sorts of incidents. So we did see, you know, probably a year, year and a half, Black Lives Movement uh, was very visible and vocal in the Canadian context. And we've had some, you know, sort of Indigenous Lives Matter. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, sort of paralleling that. Right now, we are seeing a lot of activism around the, the pipelines. But um, I just, I feel like it's become muted again uh, over the last, maybe since the summer. Uh, and, and again, is it exhaustion? Is it deflation? Is it, uh, you know, sort of loss of, of, of idealism? Uh, because it has been a very, very difficult year for uh, well, a couple of years for all of us, but particularly for communities that are so frequently targets of uh, hate bias uh, and extremism. Yeah. And I, to that point, you know, one of the things that I, I think about is is how much of that trauma can you actually take on before it consumes you, right? Because I think that when we look at the, and, I, and I'm also guilty of this myself, is if I look at sort of the things that are wrong, I find that my personal happiness deteriorates. But when I look at the things that are great and positive, they make me feel better. And I know that for you know, if I look at all the sort of microaggressions, the slights, the this, the that, the other, they start to add up and it becomes really tiring. It's like dragging a weight. And how much of that trauma that folks have gone through intergenerationally uh, maybe have spoken to the, the, the slowdown of this? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there's something to be said there. Um, you know, when I first started working in this space, uh, hate crime, one of the first community excuse me, one of the first communities I was working with were uh, Native Americans in the U.S. And that's when I started to hear this, you know, exactly the sort of thing you're expressing there is that being weighed down consistently. And, you know, that's the impact. That's the intent of, you know, hate crime or hate speech. It is to silence people. It is to oppress them. Uh, and it's been very successful uh, for, for far too many people who have been, you know, rendered fearful, who have been terrorized by the potential. Um, it, and it's not just the experience that that's, 
you know, that is definitely has an impact, but the potential uh, for uh, those sorts of incidents also weighs on them. So uh, it, it absolutely is, um, you know, something that we, I mean, we talk all the time about how do we counter, how do we counter hate narratives? How do we counter hate crime? We don't talk enough, I think, about how do we also support those who are affected by it? What kinds of resources are available for them? Uh, and I think that that's an, an area where we've let communities down. We've And we've left it to the communities themselves. So we've left it to, uh, you know, Muslim community organizations or Jewish or LGBTQ community organizations to support themselves. Um, but what can we do as allies to uh, to support all of those who are affected? Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we're always conscious of a discourse because, you know, as we try to, uh, help these communities. It's about building resilience in our own personal selves, right? Because I think that to get rid of societal constructs, that's a very long picture. One that, you know, has predated us and will probably post-date us as well. But, you know, in terms of the day-to-day, -day, how do we really help to bolster individuals' uh, ability to feel like they actually are, are welcomed and belonged in this community that we call our area, our own space, whether that be the work, whether it be that the place that we live or, or where we play. And I know that that's where we sort of met when we did a lot of work within the region that we all live in and, and the police service and things of that nature. Now, this center has been something for you that has been a dream for many years. Why is that? Well, I think... I'll reflect on a letter that a colleague wrote for me. Um, I can't I can't remember now. Maybe it was when I was uh, being promoted to full professor. That that was probably I don't know. I needed a letter of reference from a colleague anyway. And when I read the letter, it was like wow, because <laughs> he said she was the first to A B C D E F G, uh, and uh, that's even more the case in the Canadian context because there were so few people working in this space of hate studies that I felt like the center was something that could really. Um, you know, draw attention to these issues and shine, shine a light on them. It could become, um, and, and I think you've heard me talk about, you know, the sort of the, the three pillars, and I've added a fourth pillar uh, to the work that we do at the center. One is the research. Um, so it has absolutely become a, a phenomenal outlet for, uh, for research um, on, on all of these elements. Um, so we've supported that. Uh, but then we put that research to work. So there's the research, then there's the education, and the public awareness, we do uh, so much in that space in terms of mobilizing that knowledge, mobilizing that research for community-based organizations, uh, for stakeholders uh, across the, uh, the board. Um, we also work with community partners to develop uh, programs and strategies to counter uh, the issues that we've identified. Uh, and the fourth pillar is to work with policymakers and to work with uh, with government agencies to um, uh, to build out, you know, sort of macro level strategies, if you will, to to counter these issues as well. So we do a lot of consulting with uh, with those kinds of, of partners, too. Uh, and so that's that was my that was my dream. That was my goal for a center it was not just to create the research, but also to use it to make a difference in the community around us, uh, locally, provincial, locally, you know, nationally and, and globally as well. And we're well on our way, I think, uh, to uh, to doing that, given the um, sort of the visibility of the center and the extent to which we're called upon for um you know the, the the sharing of that that knowledge and expertise 
Absolutely. And, you know, like I said in, in the beginning, you're someone that I've always respected. You've been at a lot of the tables that I've been at in terms of the work that we've done collaboratively. And I know that, you know, Keith Richards uh, very well, uh, who is a huge advocate for this very same work. And, and that's really what we're aiming to do. I think, you know, as we connect with people who are trying to advance humanity, um, and, and really better sort of the the place that we live. And I know this sounds very cliche, but to leave the world maybe a little bit better off than when we got here, um, it really makes a difference uh, for us because we live here, but also those who are behind us, right? And I think that that is beneficial to um, society at large. Now, what is the goal for, like, if you were to say, I'm going to cast the vision for this uh, center, what what does that look like for you in the next five or 10 years? What, what do you really see being the hope? <laughs> well, if, if I'm going to be very Pollyannish, I'll say, you know, we'll work our way out of a job and, you know, we will, we'll fix the problems and we won't have to, the center will be irrelevant. That's not going to happen. But I, I would like to think that we are visible enough and that we are sort of connected enough, if you will, that we can, we really can influence um, public policy and through trickle down uh, also influence, I think, public dialogue and, and public discourse more broadly as well. Uh, so that we can work with our community partners to uh, you know, d- develop the sorts of strategies which will become, you know, sort of the gold standard, if you will, for uh, for challenging hate where we see it online and offline as well. Excellent. Now, we asked this question to every one of our guests. I, I'm really looking forward to your answer. How do you think as a society we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect? Oh, my gosh. I, I mean, I just keep thinking back to Rodney King, right? Can't we all just get along? And uh, I, again, very Pollyannish, but I, you know that that is our goal. Uh, and I think that um, so one of the things that we've been speaking about um, at the at this um, is that the regional level? No, I think in our our city here uh, is a series of public dialogues around what I've been calling civil words and civil deeds. I don't think that's the title they're using, but that's, that's the title I like civil words and civil deeds. And I think we just need to, um, you know, find a way to remind ourselves individually and collectively that, uh, you know, everyone, you know, sort of all, all boats rise in the, uh, with the tide. uh, If we can all remember to treat others, you know, with that, uh, with that kind of civility and to, uh, you know, for the, to, to, to think twice about the language that we use. And, uh, you know, I think to think twice about the actions that we take as well um, in terms of the, those damaging uh, and dangerous speech acts and, uh, and, and other kinds of uh, gestures and actions. That's amazing. Well, thank you for that. Where can people find you if they want to look you up? Through, through the center, um, you know, because of the work that I do, I, I, I don't like to specify much more than that. Um, but uh, yeah, you can absolutely find our center. Um, there is, I mean, there are long ways to find it and short ways. You can Google Center on Hate, Bias and Extremism and it comes up uh, or ca slash chbe. Awesome. And thank you so much for joining us today. You've been a wonderful expert opinion on your view on extremism hate bias we really appreciate you joining us today and there you have it folks the truth according to dr barbara perry thank you so much thanks victor thank you so much for listening our show is sponsored by discourse we build belonging into the dna of dei 
You can visit us on the web at discourseagency.com or check out our YouTube channel, Discourse Agency. Make sure you hit that subscribe button, leave a review, drop a comment, and most importantly, share it with a fellow human. Thank you so much for your support. And remember, your truth is your experience. Bye for now.